Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's nice to see so many of you here today. Uh, blessings to you this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, thank you for being here, and uh, we just want to worship the Lord Jesus Christ this morning with all our hearts. Thank you, worship team. You guys are doing a great job. It's been uh, just fantastic to worship with you this morning. Uh, so we'll be uh, onward and upward in our study of the book of Romans this morning in this message that today we are calling uh, Loving or Love Your Enemies. Uh, so before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the chance to study your word, uh, to see so many of your saints uh, in the building together again, Lord. Uh, for those watching on Facebook, we pray for uh, their healing if they're not here because they are sick. Uh, Lord, for others, we just are, are thankful that they are watching, and uh, Lord, pray uh, that they can come back to our building soon. Uh, this morning, Lord, we just ask you for your wisdom, and Lord, uh, for your Holy Spirit to come now and illuminate the word for us so that we might understand and apply these commands to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you've heard it said, uh, two wrongs don't make a right, right? Your parents probably said that to you uh, when you were a little kid. Uh, you know, older brother Jimmy walks into the room and smacks uh, younger brother Tommy in the head just for fun. Uh, and so Tommy picks up the local wiffle ball bat and smacks Jimmy in the back of the legs with it. And Jimmy cries out in pain and falls down in a heap. And now here comes mom running in from the next room, uh, sees Tommy standing there with the wiffle ball bat and says, Tommy! And Tommy says, he hit me first. And mom says, two wrongs don't make a right. Uh, and that is true. Two wrongs don't make a right. On the football field, uh, you know, we see it all the time. Uh, the, def the referee always catches the second guy, right? The offensive lineman smacks the defensive guy in the head, and then the uh, defensive guy punches back in the face mask, and he's the one who gets the flag. Uh, and if the, if the referee was uh, going to use the words of mom, he would say, two wrongs don't make a right to that defensive lineman. That's a 15-yard personal foul. Well, Jesus also taught that two wrongs don't make a right. We talked about it last week in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Paul, in our own uh, chapter 12 here, talked about this uh, principle of non-retaliation. He said in verse 14 uh, of chapter 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And so here in verses 17 to 21, uh, he's returning to that theme again. And so <clears throat> what we're going to find here is, is five commands about how Paul says, don't retaliate, return uh, evil with love, even when our enemies are working evil against us. So five commands. Let's talk about the first one, uh, which is this. Uh, never pay back evil for evil. This is Romans 12, 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So let's just take a minute to remind ourselves of the author of the letter to the Romans, right? This is Paul. This is a man who is familiar with evil. He knows of which he speaks because he's seen it from both sides. Remember, uh, before Paul became a Christian, uh, he was uh, a cold-blooded Pharisee. Uh, and when Stephen was being executed, uh, Paul was there and he uh, was standing there guarding the clothes of the people who were about to stone Stephen to death. And when they turned to Paul uh, to, to ask Paul for either the thumbs up or the thumbs down on Stephen's life, uh, Paul gave him the thumbs down, right? Thumbs down on Stephen, uh, and they stoned him to death. Uh, Paul then asked for letters from the high priest 
so that he would have the authority to go high and low, north and south, east and west, searching for these uh, evil Christians in his mind so that he could uh, grab them, uh, bring them back to Jerusalem uh, to face justice. And we can imagine him uh, on his horse with nostrils flaring, riding north and south, looking for these dreaded Christians. And, and when Jesus Christ met him, he was in Damascus, 135 miles away from Jerusalem. Such was his intensity uh, to find these Christians and bring them to justice. And it was only uh, when he reached Damascus uh, where God literally knocked him off his high horse, Jesus appeared to him and said, uh, Paul, it is I, Jesus Christ, who you are persecuting. And though, though Paul thought that his work were beneficial to God and, and, and that he was doing God's will, Jesus showed him that his works were actually evil. Uh, so Paul was on that side, the giving end of evil, but Paul was also on the receiving end of evil, wasn't he? Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul uh, documents all of the suffering that he had withstood for being a Christian, uh, the fact that he had been uh, beaten with the lashes 40 times minus one, uh, five times, that he was uh, beaten uh, times without number, uh, often in danger of, of death. We read that uh, chronicle throughout 2 Corinthians 11. And then after 2 Corinthians 11, uh, there was so much more evil that awaited Paul as people conspired to kill him, uh, as they made up lies and told stories about him, uh, ended up arresting him in uh, Jerusalem for a crime that uh, he was not guilty of, shipping him off to Caesarea and then to Rome. Uh, Felix and Festus both left him in prison as a favor to the Jews. He had to appeal to Caesar for justice. He went to Rome and eventually Nero uh, killed him there. Uh, so Paul was no stranger to evil on the giving end or on the receiving end. And Paul met the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, who himself was quite familiar with evil. Jesus suffered and died under the hands of wicked men, uh, these people who, who didn't want him. They only wanted what he could do for them. And when he, they found him to be uh, somebody who was not going to bring in uh, a kingdom that was going to topple Rome, well, then they had no, no use for him. So they rejected him. Uh, they tortured and they killed their savior uh, to protect their position. And Jesus forgave his tormentors from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Paul learned this principle of non-retaliation from Jesus. Never pay back evil to anyone, not even to the perpetrator. And so this is the, the, the origin of this passage. It comes from Jesus' suffering, Paul's suffering. And this is hard for you and me. Even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though we have the Holy Spirit, it's hard not to pay back evil for evil because what's the first thing you want to do when somebody does you wrong? You want revenge, right? Revenge, cold-blooded revenge. We want to get even. And so what we have to do instead is somehow surrender our desire to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit's will be done. We have to trust that God sees the injustice and that he will right it. And this requires meekness. Uh, meekness is a word that we come across uh, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus says, be meek. Uh, meekness does not mean weakness. Those are two very different things. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus had plenty of strength to do his enemies in, right? He could have killed them with a word of his mouth, but he didn't. Jesus was not weak. Jesus was meek. 
Uh, he muzzled his own strength for the greater good. And that's what God wants from us. So instead of paying back a wrong with another wrong, uh, Paul says, respect what is right in the sight of all men. Now this word right uh, is the word, uh, Greek word kalos that usually means a beautiful uh, physically to the eyes, but Paul used it in the sense of an ethical, uh, moral right or wrong here, uh, the, the ethical sense of good, noble, or honorable. But notice that he said, do what's right in the sight of all men. Well, now how do we know what is good and right in the sight of all men, especially in our culture today, right? We live in what is called a postmodern society. And if you could name the thing that is, you know, the telltale sign of postmodernism, it's that it, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Everyone decides their own truth for themselves. And so uh, we each get to decide what is your truth, what is my truth, and no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right and what is wrong. So how can we say what is right in the sight of all men when everybody gets to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. If I have the opinion that nobody owns anything, really, uh, and then I walk into your house and I say, I'd like to have that, and I'd like to have that, and I'd like to have that, uh, we call that stealing in the Bible, right? And, and God absolutely says that stealing uh, is a sin, even though my personal truth might be uh, that I'm entitled to that thing because my truth is no one really owns anything. Well. Uh, not only would I be violating biblical truth, but in Texas, you'd probably shoot me uh, and you'd have the right to. Uh, so we have to be very careful about what our own truth is, right? We want to be sure that we're holding on to biblical truth. So there, there has to be, there has to be absolute ethical and moral truth or else Paul wouldn't have said, do what is right in the sight of all men. All men meaning all people, right? So God has created us in his image, and he has placed in us uh, this piece of himself so that we recognize right and wrong, even when we deny the existence of God. People, people still know what right and wrong is, even if they deny the existence of God. And certainly people know right and wrong when you're doing it to them, right? So uh, people know if you're treating them well or treating them badly. And if I walk into their house and I take what's theirs, they'll say, hey, that's wrong, right? But who says it's wrong if we all get to decide what's right in our own eyes? Uh, we know instinctively what is right and what is wrong. And that's how we can do what is right in the sight of all men. And we see uh, just from this little example that postmodernism doesn't hold up when tested. There is an absolute standard of truth and there is this instinctive knowledge that we have of what is right and what is wrong and how we are to treat one another. And if we could boil it down, it's also found in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the golden rule, right? Do unto others what you would have done to you. Christians can bring others to Christ by doing what is right in the sight of all men, not repaying evil for evil. And we can bring each other, we can bring others to Christ by doing, doing that, by doing what is right in the sight of all men. So never pay back evil for evil. Second command, be at peace with all men. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It takes two to tango, as the saying goes, right? Uh, so to make peace with someone requires your desire to make peace and their desire to make peace. 
their desire to make peace may not always be there. Uh, and so you can't make peace with someone who won't make peace with you. But it's our obligation to try. That's what we're supposed to do. Conflict is part of the human experience, right? We, we all probably presently have conflict with somebody. Uh, and, and we always will have conflict because uh, wherever there are, are two or more sinners in one place, uh, even saved sinners, the potential for conflict exists. That, that's true in families, in the workplace. It's, it's even true in church. Uh, conflict can exist in church. And uh, that's what Paul is addressing, uh, this idea of being at peace with all men. So there are so many parallels between verses 9 to 21 here of chapter 12 and the Sermon on the Mount that I keep referring back to the Sermon on the Mount because these principles uh, continue to come up here in Matthew chapter 12. Remember, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his apostles to be peacemakers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So Jesus calls us to be peacemakers in our homes, uh, at our workplace, uh, among our friends, and in church even, uh, everywhere where there is a dispute or where there might be bitterness. Jesus calls us to be agents of reconciliation, to be peacemakers, not just to stop the conflict uh, so that there's like this Cold War kind of peace, uh, but so that we actually are trying to create the greatest good for that other person with whom we have conflict. Now, pride makes this especially difficult, right? Uh, and human pride is at the source, at the root of most conflict. Uh, it's, it's, it's so hard to resolve because our natural inclination is to, is to respond with retaliation. Uh, and it's so easy to, to let our feelings get hurt and to start this cycle of retaliation. You've done something to me, now I'm going to do something to you, and then you're going to do something to me back. And, you know, it starts out with a pea shooter, then it's a bow and arrow, then it's a handgun, then it's a howitzer. Uh, it just keeps going back and forth as the retaliation continues. And that's what happens. We're, what we're trying to do uh, is, is we want to stop that cycle. But, but when we're hurt, the last thing we want is peace. What we really want is revenge. We want to see that other person hurt. But Romans 12, this whole chapter, the, the context of Romans chapter 12 is love. Love for our enemies. Love for our brothers and sisters in view of God's mercies. We don't just do this because we're nice guys and gals, right? We do this because of what Christ has done for us in view of God's mercies. Well, what mercies? Well, we spent about a year and a half going through God's mercies, talking in chapters 1 through 11 about God's mercies, that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, that God has provided that Savior. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Now he is sanctifying us, uh, the sovereign election of God. All of these mercies we talked about in chapters 1 through 11. We were sinners destined to hell, and now we are saved by the grace of God who was willing to die for us. In fact, just think about what God had to do to make peace with us. That's what this verse is about, making peace. He said in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we were sinners. We were enemies of God. And God required Jesus' death on the cross so that there would be a bridge to make peace with us as sinful human beings. And so if God wants peace so badly that he would offer his own son so that, he could, so that we could have peace with him, how much more do you think he wants us to have peace with each other 
And that's why he says, be a peacemaker. As far as possible as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about us being uh, ambassadors of Christ and agents of reconciliation. And that's just another way of saying, be a peacemaker. We see that here. We see it in the Sermon on the Mount. So how are we going to do this? If we're going to do it, we are just going to have to learn to get over it when people insult us, when people slight us a little bit. Uh, sometimes our pride won't allow it. We want to hold a grudge. Uh, we want to withhold forgiveness because it feels good to hold on to this anger and bitterness inside of us. And we just can't stand it that someone has disrespected us. But that's so unhealthy for us that will eat us alive inside uh, and it's our pride that's doing it to us. So we have to learn to swallow that pride. Love demands that we make peace. I've heard uh, Chuck Swindoll say uh, on occasion that when there is a conflict, it's always your move. It's always your move. Isn't that something? Like even if you're the one who's been offended, even if you've been insulted, even if your kids have been insulted, your wife has been insulted, uh, if I've been unjustly fired, whatever it is, it's always your move. It's so counterintuitive because uh, it's not our move in our own thoughts and minds and hearts. Uh, we, we have been wronged and, and we want that person to come and apologize to us. And that's just probably not going to happen most of the time. Uh, first, we have to forgive, and then we have to try to make peace. As much as it depends on you, on me, we have to be at peace with all men. I've often heard of church conflict. You may have heard in, the, in your lives that there's sometimes conflict in church. Uh, and I'm always sad when I hear about church conflict because uh, what it says to me is that it's, it's, it's either one person or both people who are not following the biblical mandate to be at peace as much as it depends on you. If you have two Christians who want to make peace with each other, there should be no reason why there can't be peace. So we are commanded to be peacemakers. And the reason for this is because we are supposed to look different from the rest of the world. What does the rest of the world do? They make war with each other, right? And so we're supposed to be different. The whole Sermon on the Mount is, do not be like them, the scribes and Pharisees, right? We are told to be different. So the unbelieving world holds grudges. Uh, they gossip about the person. They, they spread rumors and misinformation about what the person did to them. But God calls believers to do exactly the opposite. Don't do what's natural to you. Do the opposite of what's natural to you. And he equips us with the Holy Spirit so that we can do that. We can't do that in and of ourselves. But with the Holy Spirit, we have resurrection power. We have the power to forgive our enemies. And that kind of power can overcome conflicts. That kind of power can attract the unbelieving world to Christ. And if we're going to attract the unbelieving world to Christ, we have to act like Christ and not like the rest of the world. And so Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's about the very last thing you would expect Jesus to say if he were just a man, right? He would be shouting down curses from the cross. But because he was more than a man, because he was God, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he expects us to do the same. Now, this is not a command for us to suffer abuse in silence. Like if, if you're being physically or emotionally abused, uh, you go to the police, you go to the church, 
this has to stop. This is not uh, something where we just uh, say, well, as much as it depends on me, I'm just not going to say anything. That, that's not what this verse is teaching. Uh, you have to go to the police. You have to go to the church. You have to make it stop. Uh, so many abused women suffer in silence because they want to honor their husbands or they want to turn the other cheek. Uh, and that's not what this verse is saying. Making peace starts with breaking the, the, the cycle of violence and abuse uh, and making the abuser face his sins. That's what's going to stop the cycle. That's how you're going to make peace. Uh, you're not going to make peace by just continuing to suffer at that person's hands. And if he's a believer, you point him back to Scripture and you convict him with it. Uh, and then eventually uh, you try to forgive once you've stopped the cycle of abuse. Now, I recognize that there are times when the, the, the abuse is too new uh, and it's too raw and it's too painful, too deep for us to forgive, uh, for us to make peace today. We need to pray about that. Uh, God knows our emotions. He knows the pain that we feel. And if there's been physical or emotional abuse, or if someone has hurt your child or done something terrible to your child, God is not going to ask you to make peace with that person today. Uh, but ask God to give you his strength so that over time, maybe you will be able to, maybe not today, but maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now, maybe five, ten years from now, I don't know. Uh, but making peace and not seeking revenge is God's way, and it's one of the marks of a Christian. So if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Third, let God handle justice. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus knows that our first instinct is retaliation, revenge, getting even. And if someone hurt my kids, my first instinct would be to kill. You'd have to hold me back, right? Uh, because that is how we are as human beings. We protect those we love. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount and Romans chapter 12 is so counterintuitive, so countercultural. It, it, it tells us not to do the exact thing that we want to do and to do the opposite of our natural desires. Now, here's where God comes in. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. So we don't have to avenge all wrongs because God has promised that he is a God of justice and he will make provision for that justice and he'll administer it in his own time, in the right way, and in the right measure. So Paul said the same thing, don't take your own revenge. This comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where uh, God says, leave room for God's vengeance. That means that God is sovereign over all events and his justice is perfect. And God will somehow use the injustice for good and he will bring justice out of injustice at the, at the same time. We see it in Joseph's story. Uh, Joseph's brothers sold him into captivity. They meant it for evil. And Joseph said to them, uh, when they were afraid that he was going to kill them after Jacob died, he said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And look what good God did in that unjust situation. Habakkuk is another example. Habakkuk asked God, how long are these injustices in Israel going to go on? All these things, the idolatry that's happening in Israel. And, and Habakkuk wanted justice. He wanted revenge on his enemies. And God said, I will bring justice. And in fact, I'm going to bring it through the Babylonians. And Habakkuk said, what? The Babylonians? You've got to be kidding me. 
uh, they're way more wicked than we are. And God said, yes, they are, but they are going to uh, bring justice on you. And then when I'm done administering justice on Israel through the Babylonians, then I'm going to bring justice on the Babylonians. So this is God's way of administering justice. He can do it on a much broader and grander scale at a much more righteous scale than we ever could. And that's why we leave justice to God, because he will dispense it at the right time and at the right moment. Now, Habakkuk's situation is interesting because Habakkuk did not get his justice that he wanted right away. It took a while for the Babylonians to come, and then it took a while for God to take his revenge on the Babylonians too. So one of our greatest problems with allowing God to have justice is that he's so slow, isn't he? He's so slow. We want justice today. We're like, come on, God, let's go with the justice already. And sometimes God's timetable is not our timetable. We want justice now. We want that pleasure of watching our enemies suffer uh, their revenge for what they have done to us. Uh, I think about 9-11. When 9-11 happened, you know, we didn't want investigations and all this. We just wanted to, we wanted revenge. We wanted to drop bombs on whoever we could, whoever did that injustice to us. Uh, and eventually uh, we, got, we got them, but uh, it took a long time for, for justice to be done. Same thing happened in, uh, in Babylon, in, in Israel. God allowed the Babylonians to conquer Israel, uh, and then it took decades for revenge to come in the form of the Persians, who then conquered the Babylonians. So that was God's form of justice, as he promised. But that happened decades after God said to Habakkuk, I will bring justice on the Babylonians as well. So God can sometimes be so slow. Many of the Israelites weren't even around to see God's justice against the Babylonians. Uh, David cried out over and over again, how long, O Lord, will I, will I see the wicked prosper? Uh, so we, we have this, this feeling that God, he promises to bring justice, but when, when God will you bring justice? And, and we don't want to wait. But he asks us to wait because he has the resources that we don't have. And he can raise up nations to bring justice on other nations uh, in the right time and in the right amount. And God can bring justice immediately, too. We've seen that also in the Bible, right? Uh, when uh, Korah and the others rebelled against Moses in the desert, God just opened up the desert and it swallowed them whole, right? The ne very next morning. Uh, so that's how we like justice. We don't want to wait. We just want the earth to open and swallow all our enemies, right? But God does not always work that way. Uh, God's justice, though, in that situation was better than anything Moses could have done. And that's why we let God handle the justice. God's ways are perfect. His promises are trustworthy. If God says he will bring justice, well, we can take that promise to the bank. So we don't need to scheme revenge. God will handle it, and we wait patiently. David had two chances to kill Saul in the desert, right? It looked like uh, God had given Saul uh, to, um, to David on a silver platter, right? And David said, I will not kill the Lord's anointed. He allowed God's timing. When, when God said, now it's time, uh, and God determined the time and the way that David would become king of Israel. And Jesus is our perfect example. He could have taken revenge on his enemies with just a word from his mouth. They all would have fallen at his feet. And how many would have believed if Jesus said, uh, sinners uh, perish, and they all died at his feet. Jesus came down from the cross. He walked into the temple and started preaching the word. Uh, that would have convinced a lot of people. But instead, he hung on a cross 
to die for our sins, to pay for the sins that we have committed. So uh, if you were a believer in Jesus, if you were one of the apostles standing there at the cross, you would have liked Jesus to smote his enemies from the foot of the cross, get off the cross and walk into the temple. But there would have been no atoning death at that point, And there would have been no salvation for sinners. So God's justice is better than our justice. Jesus had to die and be resurrected. It was the greatest injustice ever perpetrated in the history of the world, but Jesus endured it with patience because of his great love for us. So we need to learn to do the same for our enemies. It's love that makes us different. Love for our enemies and not taking revenge on us is so countercultural. The, the guy who cuts us off in traffic, uh, the guy who doesn't play our kid in the soccer game, uh, the person who's uh, talking badly about us at work and building up their own work. We want revenge on these people. And instead, what does God say? He says, don't take revenge. Instead, serve your enemies. Ah, oh, not even, not revenge. Now I got to serve my enemies too? That's the fourth thing. Uh, verse, uh, in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 20, he says, uh, next slide, guys. Uh, serve your enemies, chapter 20, uh, verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, this comes out of Proverbs chapter 25, and this command is a step beyond just not seeking revenge, right? Not seeking revenge is neutral. It doesn't require us to do anything. We can sit in our chair and not take revenge. But what Paul says to, what to do here is active. We have to actively uh, seek good for our enemy's well-being. So we feed them. We give them something to eat uh, instead of bringing them revenge. And that's the best we can do for our enemies. It's the best way that we can lead them to Christ is to show them that we're not like them, that we're not like the world. We force ourselves to break the cycle of hate and revenge and returning evil for good. And we break that cycle with acts of kindness. Now, if your enemy does something terrible to you, uh, you're to respond with an act of love. And that is so hard to do, but we have to remember that it's not about us and it's not about our revenge. It's about obeying the Great Commission, right? We have to think on a bigger scale than just my hurt, my offense, the things that have bothered me. Jesus said, go and make disciples. And so we tend to make everything about ourselves, right? It's all about us, the offense that's been done to us, and our rights, and our right to revenge, and how we can get even. But what if we thought about how we could turn the offense against us into an opportunity to share the gospel with someone? Imagine you're having a graduation party for your kid and it's getting loud and it's a little noisy in the backyard. The kids are playing music and they're having a good time. And your neighbor calls the police because it's too loud and there are too many cars on the street. Now, as a father, I would want to walk next door and punch my neighbor in the nose, right? But instead of doing that, what if I invited him to the party or I brought him a piece of cake? Something like that, returning e a good for evil, a feeding, a serving my enemy like that instead of cursing his name. Uh, how much love would it take to do that? That is the love of Christ that he wants us to show. The world would be a much different place if we returned uh, malicious acts with benevolent deeds of Christian love. And so we are called to make disciples by any means possible. And if it means swallowing our pride and feeding our enemy, well, that's what it means. 
Uh, that's what we are called to do. It's not about the wrong that's been done to us. It's about our relationship to God and our obedience to God and bringing uh, a brother or sister to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're trying to love an unbeliever to Christ. Paul said, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Well, what does that mean? Uh, that sounds very painful, doesn't it? To heap burning coals on someone's head. It doesn't sound like an act of love at all. Uh, there are a couple of, of ways that interpreters have, have said th that this means. They say that it's, it could be a metaphor for God's judgment that will come on the enemy if they continue to persist in their antagonism. That's one potential interpretation. Others think that, that it refers to an ancient Egyptian ritual uh, where the penitent sinner would walk around with a plate of coals uh, on his head uh, to uh, remind him uh, or to remind others of the, of the uh, evidence of his repentance. And then a third way is, is that, uh, that it's interpreted is that the, the pain inflicted by the burning coals uh, is a symbol of the shame and remorse of the person uh, who is made uh, to feel guilty and, and repent of their sins by our acts of kindness toward them. So we're not really sure which one Paul meant, uh, but the, the attitude that we are supposed to have uh, is, is the hope that our kindness will have the effect of causing repentance and bringing somebody else to Christ. That's always the goal. Revenge is not the goal. The goal is to cause that person to repent, bring them back to Christ. We're talking about somebody whose eternity is at stake here. It could be forever lost and perhaps could be forever saved by an act of kindness by us. So serve our enemies. And finally, do not be overcome by evil, but, be, but overcome evil with good. This is verse 21. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. And that's true because we have the Holy Spirit. Now we are indwelled with the power to do things we can never do in our own power. But still, our human nature remains, right? And this is the battle that Paul talked about in Romans 7. Uh, the, the, good that I don't want, uh, the good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, this I do. And so there's always this spiritual battle that's raging inside of us, this push and pull. And so there will always be this temptation for us to return evil to the person who has done evil to us. We always want to punch back or yell at the neighbor who called the cops. But we are called to a different response. We know a college kid uh, who works for Chick-fil-A. He delivers food for uh, Chick-fil-A. Uh, the Chick-fil-A received an order from Planned Parenthood. So my, uh, this college kid who I know, who's a Christian young man, very solid Christian, drives to deliver this order. Gets out of his car carrying his uh, you know, trays of Chick-fil-A. Right across the way, there is uh, a group of Christian protesters protesting against Planned Parenthood and they start yelling all kinds of horrible things to this kid uh, who did nothing wrong, who works for Chick-fil-A, who's trying to put himself to college, calling him all kinds of awful and horrible names. A Planned Parenthood opens the door and welcomes him and gives him a nice tip. Something's backwards there, brothers and sisters, isn't it? Now, I'm not excusing what goes on at Planned Parenthood. Uh, but what does this say to a college kid who's trying to work out his faith and he sees the Christians here and the non-Christians here and they're behaving opposite of what he expects? 
Uh, when the Christians behave like that, uh, they're returning evil from evil for evil. And it's confusing uh, when Christians look like judgmental believers and Planned Parenthood treats you like family. So what if the protesters paid for Planned Parenthood's lunch? Uh, and they called this college kid over and said, this is why we're out here. This is, this is what we're doing. And, and we approach it differently. That's overcoming evil with good. Paul says, overcome this temptation to do evil. Stop the cycle of hate. Don't allow it to grab a foothold in your life so that all you're thinking about is how to get even. Think about how to use the evil to bring somebody else to Christ. Always do good. This is a spiritual battle. This is going to test us as much as we can be tested when somebody inflicts evil on us to repay them with good. Uh, but that is what God uh, requires of us. So just to review these five things that God has asked of us, don't repay evil for evil. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Don't seek revenge. Leave room for God's wrath. Feed your enemies. Overcome evil with good. Two wrongs don't make a right, but one right may undo a whole lot of past wrongs and bring someone to Christ. So how can we do it? Applications. First, remember the big picture. Here's a news flash. Some people are jerks. I hate to break it to you. Some people are jerks, and we may do all of those five commands, and they still might treat us really badly. They still might return evil for the good that we do. And so what are we supposed to do? We have to keep our eyes on the prize, the big picture, which is obeying God in all that he asks and leaving the results to him. If we have to suffer, suffer persecution, that's so someone else may see uh, the good works that we do in response and someday they're brought to Christ, well, that is a really good result. Uh, we have to be not people who are uh, uh, pleasing other people, right? We don't do this to be people pleasers. The reason for doing this is, is not to make our enemies like us even. Uh, the reason is to make us be obedient to God uh, so that we give God glory and maybe even bring our enemies to Christ. So we see that, that our enemies will see the good deeds that we do and that they will give glory to our Father who is in heaven. God can penetrate the very hardest of hearts. He did it to Paul's heart. He did it to my heart. And some of you, he may have done it to your hardened hearts if you were uh, saved as an adult uh, and not as a, a younger person and, and you were hostile to God as, old, as you got older. So remember the big picture. Secondly, be Holy Spirit controlled. You know, your parents probably taught you to think before you speak, to plan before you act. Uh, that's good biblical advice. Uh, we have to avoid knee-jerk reactions when we face persecution, when our enemies attack us, because our initial response is always the human response. Revenge, that's what we want. But instead, uh, God says, don't react. Wait. Pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to guide your response. Breathe deep. Swallow your pride. Take a minute. Do it God's way. We can do this, and we can only do it, though, if we surrender ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit, not to respond in our own will, but to respond the way the Holy Spirit wants us to. And we can do that if we don't get out ahead of the Holy Spirit by trying to plan our own vendettas. So be Holy Spirit controlled. And finally, wait patiently. We may not see the results of returning good for evil right away. In fact, we may never see it at all. That's what's so discouraging. But Jesus 
died to secure our place in heaven. He returned good for evil, and we're saved as a result. So we want to bring as many people to Christ. We want to bring as many people to heaven with us as we can. So we endure persecution, we do God's work, we follow his commands, and we leave the results to him. So wait patiently for God's justice. God may even use the persecution that you are enduring now to bring an unbeliever into the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, you've asked us to do a hard thing in these verses. You've asked us to not bring revenge, not bring uh, evil on the people who do evil to us, Lord. And this requires such self-control, such control that we, in fact, can't uh, exercise in our own power, Lord. We need the Holy Spirit. Lord, each and every one of us is facing uh, some kind of persecution, some kind of evil being perpetrated against us, Lord. I pray that we would be able to take these principles to heart, Lord, that we would be able to make disciples by any means possible, and if it's returning good for evil, Lord, well, that's a very godly way to do it. Lord, uh, give us the strength to do it. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit, and we ask that he would help us to uh, intervene in all the conflict we have, And Lord, bring others to Christ through his incredible power. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.